Welcome Shelley Schlender for How on Earth. This is an extended version of an interview we did with James Rollins, author of the sci-fi thriller Bloodline, about immortality. James Rollins, you look a little bit like your commando people <laughs> in your books. How, how many of these sci-fi thrillers have you written? I am working on my 25th novel right now. So this was your 24th? Yeah, this was my 24th, and uh, it's the eighth in the Sigma series. And the Sigma series is about this group of characters who are all on the force of good, not evil. Exactly. They're, they're basically former Special Forces soldiers, and they've been retrained in various scientific disciplines. They're scientists with guns, and uh, they're basically out there to protect our shores against various global threats. In this book on Bloodline, you're looking at how they would protect us from a group that wants to have evil ways to make people immortal. They don't actually even have a name. Just to put, put a name on a, on a file, they're called the Guild. Um, they're basically almost a shadowy terrorist organization. And at the beginning of this novel, the president's daughter has been kidnapped out of a, a yacht in the Indian Ocean. And Sigma's called in to hunt for her. And they recruit a, uh, another former army ranger and his military war dog, a search and rescue team, to help them find her in the jungles of Africa. But what they do find out is that the target of that abduction is not the daughter, but it's the daughter's unborn child. It's that baby that potentially may or may not have the genetic key to immortality. The bloodline that would allow this baby to have a very horrific thing done to it that might make it live forever. Exactly. The whole genesis for this book came about, I was actually in a grocery store. I was waiting in line to check out, and there's a Time magazine on the shelf. A cover article for that Time magazine was the year 2045, the year man becomes immortal. 2045, that's not that far off. You know, that's theoretically within you know our own lifetime. I bought that magazine, but it also set me on about a year-long investigation to really what's going on in that industry about life extension sciences. Um, and there's some amazing things going on there, but also some things that are very scary and frightening. And this book... Uh, cast the light a bit on that. Uh, so even though immortality sounds like a wild, fantastical theme of a story, it's based on real science, and it's uh, there's some actually incredible things revealed in this novel. You know, there are some wild and scary things that you talk about in terms of life extension. There's um, actually two schools of thought when it comes to uh, extending or reach, grasping for immortality. And number one is, uh, is moving machines into man. And that means using nanotechnology to basically create synthetic organs. Like right now, they've just, just created a synthetic pancreas that now can be um, inserted in people that are diabetic. We've also had various incarnations of, of the heart pumps and artificial hearts. So we're already breaking into that, into that field. But that's just one side of the spectrum. The other mirror to that is, is basically moving man into machines. In this case, we're talking about transferring human consciousness into the synthetic arena. Um, IBM, for example, is working with a bunch of Swiss scientists on a project called the Big Bloom Brain Project, where they're trying to create a, a virtual brain in cyberspace. And that sounds pretty outlandish, but they believe that within the next 10 years they will accomplish that. They'll basically create a brain that will be a template either for creating artificial intelligence or theoretically even be a vehicle for moving human intelligence or human consciousness into that synthetic arena. And we're just talking about something that's just merely a decade away. The key thing to me was that you make all of these very creepy and scary. <laughs> I, I don't think that I would like to meet one of the machines that you invent in your book that has 
a sort of artificial intelligent life in it, it doesn't sound like a very nice critter. Not at all. And, and actually, even that's based on some some real science. At the end of my novel, I sort of lay out what's true and what's not. And in this case, I actually linked to some videos where you can actually see what's going on in that merging of biological neurons with something synthetic. You can actually watch to see exactly how close we are to achieving what I sort of... Uh, uh, imagine in this novel. When you say how close we are, do you mean immortality or just the ability to have these machines have artificial intelligence and, as you say, the artificial pancreas, which I don't know if I would want to have one of those forever. There's a term called the singularity, and that's that moment in time where computers will surpass human intelligence. Uh, current estimates say that, um, you know, Computers are pretty powerful right now. They can do amazing things. But within the next decade, they're, they're saying that computing power will increase a thousand-fold between now and 10 years from now. So can you just imagine what life will be like when computers are a thousand times more powerful than they are today? And in that, within that realm of possibility is the advent of artificial intelligence, true artificial intelligence. Right now, they're just, just today I was reading an article about a computer that was able to uh, identify a cat that had, didn't know what a cat was, had a description of a cat, was showed a picture of a cat, was able to do so that was a cat. So already we're seeing sort of the rudimentary uh, beginnings of artificial intelligence. In regards to immortality, um, or like I said, that Time Magazine article anticipates by 2045 that might be possible. I'm a little more pessimistic. I think by 2045, I don't know if immortality will be will be a, will have been breached, but I do believe that we'll see significant increases in longevity. And I believe not just you know increasing the slow decline that occurs in in, in your senior years, but actually adding quality years. So it'll be interesting over the next couple decades to see what happens in both the field of biology and the fields of, of computing, uh, where we are as, as human beings. Well, in your novel, while you have these fearsome creatures that are artificial intelligence machines, I really like the dog better. <laughs> as do I. Being a, a veterinary myself, of course, the dog also has a, a, a close place in my heart. I sort of got the idea for Tucker and Kane, this uh, army ranger and his dog, from a USO tour to Iraq that I was on about a year and a half ago. It was a group of us authors going out there to entertain the troops. And it was great meeting men and women out in the field. But, you know, being a veterinarian, I sort of gravitated towards seeing the dogs out there. I was really curious, you know, how the dogs were utilized. These uh, handlers and the dogs have very deep, intimate bonds. They eat together, train together, they sleep together. And they're emotionally very, very connected. Um, I commonly heard a phrase says that, that they, they describe this called it runs down the lead, describing that over time the uh, emotions between dog and handler go up and down that leash, binding them intimately together. One man actually said, you know, I think my dog understands me better than my wife. Uh, so that gives you some indication of how emotionally attached they are. That was something I wanted to create on the page in this novel is to try to capture that bond and to honor that unique American hero on the page. Um, I, I tested them in a short story called Tracker that I released as, as a short e-novella just to see if, you know, what it was like to write that pair of characters. And, and literally, I just fell in love with them. I just I couldn't let them go with just a short story. So I recruited them to Sigma just so I could actually, you know, have them around a little bit longer. And then you also have dogs as the basis for one of the most macabre scenes in the novel that you've written about how testing is done on by the evil group the bad guys on 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 people but it's based on something that really happened to dogs 
at the back of my book, I have the link to this video. It's, archi it's archival footage from the Soviet era where they were doing research with dogs. And what they were trying to do is to, to basically revive the dead. You can see on film, and it's disturbing for any animal lover. It's disturbing for anybody that has any compassion. But it's also just tells you, gives you a hint of what's possibly going on in other labs around the world. This is going on in the Soviet era, you know, in the past. What's going on in some of these third world countries where there's some clandestine and secretive labs going on doing different types of biological and genetic work? What might be happening out there? Can you describe it? I apologize to anybody that has a weak stomach. They, they basically disarticulated a dog. They, they decapitated the dog. They separated the dog's lungs, heart, limbs, and head and separated them apart, but they had pumps and different types of mechanics to keep the heart pumping, the lungs breathing. And they were able to keep this basically decapitated dog's head alive for a very long period of time. And it was very creepy because on that video you can see the decapitated head of the dog, yet if it hears a whistle, the ears will perk up. If you touch its nose, its whiskers will, will twitch. So even though this head has been decapitated for days on end, it was still having these responses as though it was still alive. Well, and so in your novel, you describe people where the same thing has been done with them, and specifically a lot of women who are being used for breeding experiments for immortality. It, we've seen that demonstrated many, many times in the past where they've done animal models, and then they've gone ahead and, and continued to human models. So I can't imagine that somewhere at some time that somebody's not been experimenting with with things like we saw in that Soviet-era footage. Well, Tom Johnson, the geneticist I know, said he would never do that. And the human and internal and animal review boards would never allow that to happen because I think that a lot of scientists feel that when research becomes cruel, uh, there's a way that the research doesn't do good anymore. And he's of that vein. He's a big fan of immortality books, by the way. And he had questions all the way through the book about whether it's plausible or not. He is not someone who believes immortality is possible even for the universe. Does that make sense to you? Sure. So you would agree with that. He is somebody who's inclined to believe that longevity could be extended because he's one of the first, he may be the first scientist to have used DNA to extend the life of a very small roundworm called C. elegans. He was the guy who did that. With he, He's the guy who found age one. Oh, really? And he knows the fellow that you... Um, referred to his research in developing the idea about the mitochondrial DNA being transplanted into a person to make them live longer. He knows about that concept. Right. Um, he's inclined to say that's not very likely to be anywhere in the future. It's a concept, but not something anyone's trying. At this point, um, using PNA, which is a protein synthesis to produce an artificial DNA strand, has been done in the lab. Uh, they haven't been able to stabilize it into a biological form. And right now, it's, it's the problem with that is that it's uh, water-sensitive. It dissolves in water, and being that we're water-based creatures, uh, that's, uh, it's hard to do that unless there's some way to waterproof that, uh, that strand of DNA. The idea is to take the DNA from the mitochondria, which is part of our cells, that has slightly different DNA than the rest of our cell has, and somehow combine it with our regular DNA, that that kind of process might be able to strengthen the longevity of the cell. That's where it started from, but the newest science is actually not taking the, the DNA from the mitochondria, but actually creating a synthetic version of that. Uh, there's been a, science, a couple scientists um, in Belgium that were 
able to create an artificial synthetic version of what was found in the mitochondria because of its stability. And just within about two years ago, they were able to actually, in the lab, insert that third strand into our two, into, into a two DNA strands to form that triple helix. Now, again, because it's not, uh, it's water soluble, it's not a, uh, it works in the lab, but they've not been able to, you know, transfer that into, into humans or any type of biological model yet. But at this point, they are experimenting with different ways of waterproofing that molecule so that if they can achieve that, then they can start doing biological experiments. Well, you had the bad guys doing most of the cool science in this book. <laughs> well, again, since we're dealing with science that's, you know, rather, you know, because what I like about science and doing scientific thrillers is not so much the, you know, the cogs and the wheels of that technology, but it's how that technology sort of tests the moral fiber of the character that might be, you know, either investigating, performing, or trying to thwart what's being done. Uh, whether it comes to human cloning, whether it comes to stem cell research, there's you know, all these different forms in which uh, science sort of tests you know, who we are as a people, where we're headed. And that's where I like to play in is where that you know, science and morality merge and, and that conflict is, is you know, great fodder for, for fiction. It is. It's great fodder for fiction. But how about it? How do you really believe that there are people who are immortals? Among us. Well, at this point, if you, if you take the assumption that in the year 2045 that we will achieve some form of immortality or at least significantly increase our longevity, then anybody that's, you know, little kids right now that are maybe, you know, just born or within their first few years, when they reach 2045, they're going to be in their early teens or early 20s. And uh, if that technology is available, then theoretically those young kids that are right, walking around right now, they, they may see 150 to 200 years if the current path of, of longevity uh, stays the course it is right now. Well, and I think Tom Johnson would agree with you that that is within the realm of humans to live that long in a healthy way for most of their lives. I don't know if true immortality, living forever is possible, unless, again, you somehow have some different transfer into a synthetic arena. But I do believe by the year 2045, we're going to see a significant increase in longevity where... Uh, and that raises a whole slew of different issues from a moral standpoint. Also, is if you do can live to 100, 200 years old, what is, how does that change the world? Who has access to that, uh, that, that, that gift of, of life? Uh, who doesn't? And if you have an infinite number of days ahead of you, or at least a significantly increased number of days, how does that change who you are as a person? Um, do you stop doing things simply because you think I could do that tomorrow and because you have an infinite number of tomorrows, nothing gets done? Do you get bored with life? Um, do you become so worried because your life is so precious, because it's so extended, that anything that risks shortening that 200-year lifespan might make you do nothing? So, again, that's just something that's, you know, again, I love the way that different sciences can make you question. Because one of the greatest compliments I get from, from readers is, you know, I like to hear them say, you know, gosh, that was really exciting. I was turning pages deep into the night. But the greater compliment to me is when someone says they turn that last page, they close that cover, and I left them something to think about. Whether it's the question of, you know, could you live forever like we've been discussing? And then, of course, the question is, you know, would you live forever? If that was possible, you know, would you opt to take that, that magic pill that would allow you to live to 200 to 250 years? Uh, well, James Rollins. Yes. Do you have, do you have kids? Uh, I, I, no, I don't. But you care about the generation coming up. Exactly. I've got six nieces and nephews. Uh, so I've got a lot of kids around my life, but not personally my kids. Well, and, and you care about what happens to the world, and 
um, you know, all of us started out as a little one-celled creature, what, two and a half billion years ago, three billion years ago? Are we immortal? If that's how we started out. That's an interesting concept right there. That could, I could build a whole novel right around that concept. Do you want to live longer? I would be hard not to. Simply that I, I've just got a, a very strong curiosity. Um, to me, life is, is somewhat like a, um, a movie. And I, I would hate to have to leave midway along. Uh, I'd like to see what happens. I'd like to see what happens is to the world, to people, to, you know, to this country, to next generations. The pure curiosity I'd lean towards wanting to stick around. I'm Shelley Schlender. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to an extended version of an interview we did for How on Earth with James Rollins, New York Times bestselling author of the science fiction thriller Bloodline. For more interviews like this, check our website howonearthradio.org.